Welcome to Joy's podcast series, Live Curiously. My name is David Hellquist. Born in Sweden, I've lived in London for almost 20 years, working with a wide array of magazines and newspapers as a writer, editor and stylist. For the last few years, I've also been running Document Studios. As a creative content agency, we work with global brands on alternative storytelling, often from an editorial point of view. Having collaborated with Joyce on print projects in the past, they now kindly asked me to explore fashion, culture and the people who continue to inspire us through these podcast series. Over the course, I will meet some of London's most creative minds to find out how they manage to stay curious throughout their careers. In this episode, I'll be talking to Christopher and Graham Rayburn, the brothers behind the London-based Rayburn brand. Chris initially started the brand himself way back in 2009. On the back of his graduation collection from the prestigious Royal College of Art, he launched his vision of what responsible and sustainable fashion looks like. Earlier this year, brother Graham joined the company as a performance director, having worked for British cycling brand Rafa as a designer. Sharing his brother's interest in functionality, the two are now developing and growing the brand, recently opening up a new standalone Rayburn store in London's Soho. Uh, welcome to the podcast, guys. First things first, is it weird to do interviews together? No, not at all. No, we're, we're absolutely used to doing things like this together. But yeah, we're quite very different characters. So I think sometimes have different different views and opinions on things. So just to sort of introduce you, the person just speaking is Graham. Yes. And then we have Chris, Christopher. You're the younger brother, right? Yep. So I am three years younger than Graham. And I'll try and speak with a slightly different uh, voice so that people can work <laughs> out who's who about that. Yeah, that sounds good. And Chris, you're also comfortable with being in these type of, I mean, over the years you've done your fair share of interviews, but it's not very often you have your sibling next to you. No, so I've been running now, um, what was Christopher Rayburn and now Rayburn with Graham joining the company for just over 10 years. So obviously I've been working and doing quite a lot of interviews and things over that time, but it's really exciting now to be sitting here with Graham. Yeah, having those different perspectives, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and how did that happen then? Uh, you know, was it, was it you, Chris, convincing Graham over Christmas lunch back at your parents? <laughs> come on, come on. Um, it was, no, it was a very straightforward, organic process. Chris and I have always worked together in sometimes in more kind of official formal capacity and supporting each other over the years. So, no, it was a very fluent, natural connection, I think, to join Chris coming up for two years ago now. Did any of you have any reservations about working together? I mean, we can clearly see the the benefits of that, as Chris said, but, you know, at the end of the day, family affairs can be tricky as well. <laughs> Um, no, absolutely no reservations whatsoever. No. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, the, the funny thing is if we're open and honest, when you get a little bit older, so I'm 37 now, Craig's 40, you of course know one another really well. And one of the things that we've definitely done as we got older was work out if we're working on projects, the best way to work on those projects. So essentially assigning a project manager, knowing your roles and responsibilities, and then things flow pretty well. So the great thing now with the way that we work, uh, ultimately as creative director at Rayburn, you know, my role is pretty clear in, in terms of the seasonal uh, concepts and then the longer term strategy. Graham coming in as performance director brings a lot to the team. 
and has a really uh, specific skill set that certainly I didn't have. And that's brilliant, you know, to have those two sides. Which I think we've always recognised that, that um, I sort of say we cover each other's blind spots in a way as well, you know, talking about the, the good the good skill sets we have. And then also I think then they it complements each other and, and covers each other's blind spots. Mm. Because so what you, Chris, were referring to is Graham's worked as designer or head designer at Rafa, the, the cycling brand. Yeah, my position was lead designer for Rafa Racing, working on performance cycleware. I was extremely lucky to go for an amazing ride with them. So in terms of the growth of the the business, from being employee thirteen to you know the global globally recognised brand that they are now, um, and being able to work on every category of product, every type of fibre and material, uh, lots of different applications from off bike and commuter wear through to designing for world champions and Olympic champions. So. Yeah, phenomenal range and privilege to to be part of of that growth. How do you, I mean, if you compare the two jobs, it sounds like your Rayburn title and and also what you did at Rafa is is performance focused. But other than that, is there any overlap? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think there were, you know, in one instance, it was looking to optimize the fastest, the most aerodynamic or the, the most lightweight, the most breathable. It's exactly the same process looking at reducing impact. I hesitate to use the word sustainable themes, but, you know, how we can actually improve methods of production, designing for end of life, you know, for closed loop processes and, and regeneration. All of those steps in the, in the design and making process can be optimized in order to we, we can actually be more responsible with products. I look at it exactly the same same lens there and, and every single detail from yeah, the fiber, the fabric, the making, even color palette, you know, it's, it's such an um, important thing that we get that right and optimize it. Mm. Um, and last question about you being brothers have you did you ever look into other other brothers family after the d-squared twins (laughs) (laughs) you're not there just yet no we're not there just yet but i don't know i think there's a real pride in yeah bringing together kind of family skill sets and yeah it's just been really really interesting we have another older brother as well Stuart, who uh has been amazingly supportive to the business in his own way. So, yeah. Can you see him getting involved? So Stuart is in construction and super talented and has been amazing even with the, the build-out of studios and stores and those sorts of things. So who knows in the future? So, yeah, there is another, there's sort of another complementary aspect there with, with a completely different skill set, which, which kind of is brought to the team there as well. I remember you, Chris, telling me over the years, you know, about like growing up and all the kind of sounds like quite crazy stuff you guys got up to, you know, running around and, and making stuff and uh, and so on and your family house. Did you ever work on things back then even together? Almost like, you know, sort of early collaborations without knowing what it was you were doing. Oh, I think when you're kids, you're always collaborating, you know, and, and we were very fortunate. We grew up in, in Kent, um, so southeast of England and it was four miles to the nearest shop. We grew up in the middle of the countryside and we're very lucky to grow up with the three of us brothers, but then also surrounded by quite a few uh, friends at the time who have become really good friends as we've grown older. So yeah, the the whole spirit was about adventure and fun and getting out there and making and doing. And and that was everything from building tree houses to robots to you name it. You know, Mm. we we were taking things apart, putting them back together. and, And that's definitely led into our creative practice later. 
did you guys have separate roles back then as well? Because, you know, you talked about like how you're creative director, you're, you're a performance director, you know, like A, how does this design process work now? And is it is it anything like when you were kids? That's a good point. Maybe you've got us like on the on the psychologist couch here a little bit to kind of go back. But yeah, I think that I was quite often the person sort of fixing a bike or maintaining a bike or something like that. But, you know, I just somehow instinctively was really interested in getting things to work. And maybe that is now applied to the process of making apparel and getting apparel to work similarly as well well the nice thing as well because of the structure of our of our business we have three facets to the work that we do the first is the the remade aspect and that's really what we're known for in terms of the overall concept so this is about deconstructing reworking pieces and we we do all of them in our own atelier in east london then we have recycled and, and reduced products so the recycled is generally pt plastic bottles ground up made into fiber made into material and then with the reduced it's a focus on waste reduction a lot of jersey product through portugal of course organic and the cool thing there is that naturally our our kind of skill sets can fall into those two uh, or three areas actually so myself with the remade and almost this archaeology going out finding all of these original pieces to deconstruct and rework and then with graham on the on the performance side so thinking about the fit quality value of the pieces coming through in, in recycled and um, and reduced. And yeah, I guess that still plays back into the way we were as kids, you know, in, in terms of the experimental side of things. And Graham, Chris has a has a long-standing uh, interest in, in army surplus and, uh, you know, military uniforms, etc. That's obviously a pivotal part of, of the brand as I was been. Is that something you share? Yeah, absolutely. I was similarly sort of fascinated and nerdy i suppose like uh, you know paying attention to the different different types of kit and function and for me it was really a about a self-sufficiency i was really interested in that actually you could have these adaptable clothing or you know bags that were designed to carry things for a certain number of days or, or something like that which again maybe plays into this idea of just the function and things that just work uh, designed for a specific task very tight brief or versatile brief in some cases hmm. do you guys ever go out on the weekends together going through thrift stores rummaging through milk, you know, we, milk we, yeah we haven't really done too much of that but when we have been traveling in the u.s new york there have been some cool um surplus places over there yeah i mean it's it's funny to kind of flip that question around as well Graham was always a pathfinder and when, obviously when you're younger, it's having a brother three years ahead of you that was interested in, in all of this stuff, whether it be the functional clothing, military, etc. That's, I guess, really what got me hooked early on rather than looking at it the other way around. I think it's always sort of been that way. But the cool thing now is that I think it's, it's still what's driving the business forward, but it's always evolving as well. Those pieces that we collect, we have now quite an extensive archive of, of military and utility clothing. But the very nature of, of all of those pieces, there's so much innovation that then you can learn from, that then you can become inspired from. But ultimately, with Rayburn, it's about still trying to do something completely new at the end of all of that. Mm. You guys live quite close to each other, no? Yeah, a couple of hundred meters, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's very close. Yeah, although bizarrely, we don't see a huge amount of each other, though. I think cause there's so much going on. Well, I was going to ask, do you, if, you, if you guys ride into where together, because you're both, you're both keen cyclists. Yeah, well, occasionally there'll be the occasional point of synchronicity yeah. in our in our. It's community. generally Graham overtaking me. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a lot quicker. And uh, yeah, so where we live down in South London, it's a 
brutalist tower block built uh, between 1968 and, and 72. And uh, they're two tower blocks that look like battleships that really dominate the skyline. And what's charming about them is they have a completely unobscured view of the whole of London. And Graham lives in one and I live in the other. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a, a cool spot to be. And yeah, definitely the best view of London that you can possibly have because you're almost outside of it right. looking in. Yeah. Hmm, that's nice. So you've got yeah. your own little community down there. Yeah. We talked about, you know, you guys working together before uh, Graham joining Rayburn because, Chris, you actually did a collaboration with Rafa as well, didn't you? Yeah. Through Graham, I imagine, initially at least. Yeah, so that was all the way back in spring 2013. And in a roundabout way, of course, it was through Graham, but we'd, of course, been in touch with Rafa a lot. Graham was in there. We actually met for dinner and I think a few drinks one night and hatched a plan. And it was definitely one of the not only kind of most efficient projects, but also one of the most successful, I think, because we really knew one another. We knew exactly what we wanted to do for the project. And it just made really good sense for both brands. And what did you do specifically? I imagine it was a apparel of some sorts. Yeah, so it was two seasons, uh, spring, summer and autumn, winter, five pieces each for each collection. And we were exploring sustainable themes where actually we had a jacket that was made of military surplus parachute. We were looking at natural fibres, recycled fibres, local production, Mm. um, which was really interesting. So we were working with factories in London, in the UK, so... Back to Chris's point about it being a very efficient way of working. If there was a problem, we could jump on a train or jump on a bike and go and meet someone and fix the problem and understand what that was. Like work with the factory, mm. work with their strengths and understand and work really efficiently that way. It was actually to the point where some of the bulk production was brought back to the UK actually for that reason, because actually it was a more efficient way of, of working right. in main range products, which was really interesting. <clears throat> this is an interesting point you raise also in the context of, of Rayburn as a brand, because, you know, over the years, you've always had an in-house atelier or studio where you actually make things right and you know having observed the the menswear scene in london over the past 10 years or thereabouts i think that's one of the key aspects of you know except for of course the aesthetic point of view but raven as a brand to being able to make these things yourself mm-hmm. most brands are not able to do that are they and, you know yeah. in that size anyway Sure. Well, it's it's definitely something that I was very keen about when I left the Royal College of Art was I sort of realized quite quickly that in order to really understand and I suppose capitalize on the idea of remaking and then what became the remade in England aspect for our work, you needed incredibly highly skilled people to do that. And at points early on, I did test making, for example, parachute garments with other factories or things. It never worked. And so alongside kind of growing my my own team at the time, there was just a very pragmatic approach that I sort of realized quite quickly that by growing that side of the company, it would give us such agility mm-hmm. and it would give us a protection because we were able to sample very quickly. We do limited runs of production ourselves and we make now all of our remade garments actually in-house. So that can be between... 800 up to now two, 3,000 pieces a season oh, wow. in-house in our own studio. And that gives me such pride now. Mm. And we're growing the team quite significantly. We're looking at how, uh, alongside the studio actually being open to the public, how we can then bring our community into that design phase as well. So it's quite an interesting experiment. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so far, 
so good, right? It seems to yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, seems to be it's working. hard work, but good work, I think. And the thing that I've realized, having been now in business for just over 10 years, there are so many talented designers that have been and gone in that time. And we've been able to weather the storm, I think, really quite successfully because we've had that agility and because we've been able to test and learn. Where I think that Chris has built up a phenomenal level, uh, it must be a unique level of experience about understanding approaches to these different models of making and production where actually it looks very easy, but it's alchemy really, like it's really complex, subtle and nuanced, like figuring out the balance of what's right, the amount of time to spend on a product, the investment and striking that balance across the different ranges, which is a phenomenal talent to have. Also, I mean, we having mentioned the Rafa collab, but I think over the years you've worked on countless collaborations: Clark's, Montclair, MCM, Porter, Eastpac, Fred Perry, Palladium, Umbro, and, and and you know the list goes on. But what do you look for in collaborations? Because a, of course, they're a pretty good way of sort of you know sustaining smaller brands when you have that kind of a work with them and yeah. making product that you're not maybe able to make yourself. And I suppose also there's a financial factor to it. But surely yeah. you're also also looking for something to you know maybe grow and you know. Yeah, brilliant question. Early on. It was very much about validating different parts of our own business. So I was really keen that we would be known for our outerwear and having the opportunity to work with Montclair really helped to endorse that side of the business. When we wanted to start doing accessories for the first time, working with Porter, Porter Yoshida out of, of Japan was a really natural step. And then as we've kind of grown, then it's been very much about how we choose partners based on values and ultimately ensuring that we can bring a lot of the Rayburn ethos to the way that we're working and that we're actually going to learn from those projects as well and the partners that we're working with. The fantastic thing within that journey as well is that we've had some brilliant opportunities to do things like the Victoria and Albert Museum uniforms and work with some unexpected brands like Disney, for example, but always doing it through the Rayburn ways, so remembering the three R's, so either remade, reduced or recycled. You've mentioned them already. They are the sort of the pillars of the brand, those three principles. Mm. I suppose they govern just about everything you do. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've given us a real clarity. And actually, it was only in 2017 that we really put pen to paper and, and got them in a very clear diagram that everyone understood. The truth is, in the years before that, We'd been very fortunate to grow quite quickly. We'd won a lot of awards and we were in some of the best stores around the world. And actually the truth is that we hadn't always grown in the right way. I think we ended up at points just making stuff. And it was 2017 that we really pulled things back in and, and just said, if we're not doing one of those three things, remade, reduced or recycled, we're not going to do it. And it's as simple as that. And I think it's really helped us focus as a business. And yeah, it's channeled, I think, a lot of good energy. I mean, it sort of brings the conversation towards this word, sustainability. You can't really talk to anyone really about fashion today without that word comes up, for good and for bad, I yeah. suppose. What does sustainability mean to you then? Well, yeah, the hesitation is it's a bit of a catch-all. It's, it's become ubiquitous and unfortunately sort of devalued as well, even if there is the good intention. So we prefer using actual language which infers more accountability and responsibility. So uh, responsible design, which actually then puts yourself, the individual, to actually be responsible for your impact. I think one of the issues is 
Sustainability is sometimes used as a term in a binary sense, whether something is sustainable or not. It's a completely dynamic process where, you know, the good choices we're making now in the future will will become better informed to actually make better choices. New materials will come along to treat it as a dynamic state that you will always be, be seeking to improve where you know we have recycled but what does recyclable look like you know reduced and what does entirely biodegradable look like so we're really interested in these next phases around sustainability i think one of the problems is isn't it that people brands feel that they have to describe themselves as sustainable surely we're looking for a point in history or in time where actually that's just like how it is and no one has to say we're a sustainable fashion brand we're just a fashion brand exactly that point's been made recently that instead of you know we should actually be using the terms non-sustainable fashion to actually refer to materials that are recklessly and irresponsibly produced absolutely yeah um it's funny that you sort of segregate this thing off as almost a separate thing when actually it's just inherent to good design to mm. well-designed and engineered product we will probably get to that point but we're still in that phase where you know there are a lot of brands abusing that the consumer isn't really educated what these words mean we also have to be honest that we don't know everything we're learning and we need to be open to those new ideas and to be honest about where we don't know things as well, well that, and where that, we're seeking to improve that leads me on to my next question because i mean it's a tricky one for fashion sometimes ultimately you want to sell products right but where do you think Rayburn as a brand could improve and better yourself it's a fantastic challenge we're still small as a company but then we've just opened our first store in central london alongside the lab space in in east london so all of a sudden i suppose we're on this acceleration as a business where there's a lot of impact in everything we're doing every day and of course all the way from the way we're shipping things all the way to then considering what happens to the items that we're making not just when they've left the store but years later as well so definitely I think one of the biggest challenges for us and the industry as a whole is how we start really to look at the circularity conversation and start to make sure we're designing products with end of life in mind uh, which isn't easy i think things like value in use can someone actually uh, rejuvenate that product and have it repaired you know could they have a, a size altered so actually then the relationship will continue there with the product and the brand beyond just that point of retail which is the traditional model yeah um, I think around the experience uh, is, you know, that's that's a huge part now of acknowledging that consumers are no longer just simply shopping in a traditional sense, but actually looking for experience. And fortunately, that's something we've always already been doing for years is actually getting people interested and excited about the the making process what goes on behind the scenes so we offer things like free studio tours sort of every fortnight and workshops and things like that so actually people can come and engage and connect with the act of making i mean rayburn is as you just said chris still a relatively small brand but now especially with you working with timberland as well uh, you know you get to sort of see these global brands changing well hopefully some of them you know do you think they are are they taking the responsibility they need to be taking the simple answer is i think everyone is waking up to their responsibilities and on a sort of individual level we're becoming more aware of our impacts but then on a brand level we're realizing that we need to change and change quite quickly. As Global Creative Director at Timberland, the really exciting thing is that I've taken a role at a job which always had kind of responsible design at its heart. Ultimately, it has a tree as its logo. Mm. 
When I graduated from the Royal College of Art back in 2006, it was a year later that Timberland released the first Earthkeeper boot, and this was specifically designed and manufactured in the most responsible way at the time. The great thing now, 12 years later on, is that it's my role to work alongside the talented team there to bring a more progressive aesthetic, but in combination with responsible design. And the really exciting things are all that learning from 10 years at Rayburn, then all of a sudden you can bring that to a truly global brand like Timberland, and then you start to make a massive difference. And my personal excitement is not just what's happening with Timberland, but then how ultimately we can become a pathfinder for the industry. We can help to push other brands in the portfolio. It's a Timberland's owned by VF. So you've got brands like Vans and the North Face and many others. And then all of a sudden you really start to change the game. I think it's an exciting moment. And definitely now it's brilliant that brands from the sportswear, kind of giants to others closer to home, they're really putting the flag in the ground and saying we want to change. Mm. And I think a lot of this has to be about working together and being transparent as that change happens. If you boil it down though, what is the biggest challenge? I mean, what is it the sort of the number one threat as an industry that we're facing? I think the, the number one threat is still the expectation around continued incremental growth for every company out there is not sustainable in the old fashioned sense and the ramifications for all of this stuff that we're making, a lot of which gets discounted that goes out there is not healthy and it's a race to the bottom. Mm. That's the biggest challenge for me. And there is obviously the biggest opportunity. So how do you also keep that buzz of um, finding something new, looking good, feeling good, the experience of shopping? How can you actually replicate that in other ways, you know, through digital means or other activities which actually have the same reward, but, but actually much reduced impact? So there's really exciting things happening now. The key thing is that people are always going to need clothes. People are always going to want clothes. I mean, pretty much, you know, that and food. And because of that, that's actually where we can make the biggest change. You know, there's lots of other superfluous things that actually we can we can do without and strip back and, and lose. But clothing is absolutely critical, I think, to the human experience. Indeed it is. But you know, in, in the face of all this adversity and the doom and the gloom, how do you stay interested? What is it that inspires you and, and that excites you when you wake up in the morning and go to work? I think the, the cool thing for us is every day is completely different. It really is. And the studio, so the Rayburn Lab, is always evolving week on week. Now that we've got bricks and mortar retail stores, now that we're advancing our online activities as well, it's incredible. And then when you put in the, the work with Timberland, other external projects, the fact that we've started working now outside of traditional fashion by working on uh, furniture projects. You know, it's brilliant and really exciting the way things are evolving. And then it's about the people. The people that you interact with, for me, are the most inspiring thing. And we're now so fortunate to meet so many talented men and women all around the world that in one way or another, we're interacting with, we're learning from, we're becoming inspired and hopefully vice versa. And that's, I think, what has always kept me kind of ticking and made me love fashion and this part of the industry so much because it's pretty unique. There aren't many other industries where you can genuinely go from having an idea in the morning, you know, sketching it and potentially even making that thing in the afternoon. And then we have the real fortunate ability and, and agility to even having that item in a store by the end of the week if we want to, you know, and that's really exciting. 
Yeah, it's the real deal. I mean, you can make it happen yourself. I'm afraid my, my answer is a lot more mundane and probably boring, but the really exciting thing for me is around the advancement and technology of fibre and material and production techniques now that what seems like these minuscule changes and quite boring are actually really radical and will really transform the way that we are designing, making, consuming and disposing of apparel. So I'm seeing advances in materials like perpetually recyclable polymers that might mean that one day you can return that grotty smelly pair of socks uh, in the same way that you do a glass bottle to the bottle bank and it will simply be repolymerized and extruded and, and regenerated again. And that's, that's pretty huge, I think, in, mm. in terms of the way that we will be using clothing now rather than popping it into a big hole in the ground or incinerating it. Where do you guys go for inspiration? We talked about, you know, like meeting inspiring people. Tell me about the War and Peace Festival. <laughs> that, that's an amazing place. Wow. Yes, yeah, so, you went there first. Yes. So there is quite a uh, interesting gathering in the UK and Southeast England once a year. It's, the, I believe, the largest gathering of military vehicles in Europe. I think is its kind of uh, strap line. It's the world's biggest meeting of military enthusiasts. There we go, yeah. Is it? Oh, wow. I believe so, um, yeah. Glastonbury with guns, I think, is <laughs> no, the... Uh... No, you need to err as well on the uh, on the peace side. Yeah, it's not all about yeah. the No, I think yeah, that's the... the, uh, the no, it's, more, uh, the it's called War and Peace Festival, but it's, yeah. it's more about the peace than the war. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, a place where there is a huge sales section for surplus absolutely everything that you could possibly need to live and survive within any of the global forces that there yeah. are. So it's a really interesting place to go and see and understand the scale perhaps of some of this excess that is generated, the weird and wonderful things that can inspire some of the, the really super functional design aspects that are put in. So it's a really interesting place to go and see some of the weird and wonderful surplus things that happen so apparel that has to be designed for um, extreme durability um, or repair in the field so we can pick up on these really interesting details a lot of the things that me and chris end up talking about and also here today you know it's sort of steeped in history and it's objects of the past but obviously i suppose as a as a fashion brand of today your job is to make all those things contemporary and modern mm. and, and maybe I, I suppose that's where the fibers and the, the fabrics and the production technology that you mentioned graham comes into play definitely yeah application of technology seeing it as a tool not the end product is really interesting then what that opens up so we are looking into things like 3d design you know could you actually conceptually design a whole collection and not actually have to sample it until you're actually ready to do that and perfect it in the digital realm i think there's so many interesting things that can take something from the past we look at it in the present and position it then into the future chris you um sometimes refer to what you do as as archaeology as well of sort of going down these rabbit holes scraping back down these kind of sort of chains of supply what's fascinating as well is there's so much stuff out there and i'm always finding new things or new old things importantly and then the other thing is that as you get older, of course, your experiences and your perspective and almost your eyes change anyway. So what you're looking for and what you're looking at through that context changes. So it's been really interesting that even over the 10 years, there are probably things that maybe I looked at early on in the business that I didn't use or remake in any way that then they've come up in a different context and they've made perfect sense to bring into a collection. And that side of things I think is 
it's fantastic because the remade aspect when completely recontextualized is what makes this brand and keeps this brand very fresh because you're not just going to a fabric fair in Paris and looking for the latest innovation with many other brands. You're actually looking for something that you don't even know that you're looking for sometimes mm. to then build a new narrative around. But that is also to go back to what inspires you, what keeps you on your toes, how you live curiously. Yeah. It's that, I suppose, right? How something that you don't expect. Yeah, absolutely. It, it makes the design process and the research process, it's never linear and in a really healthy way can throw you into tangents and unexpected places that you wouldn't normally have gone by yourself. And yeah, that word curiosity, I think is spot on because I think I'm sure it's true of most designers. You have to have that innate curiosity to continue to want to look beyond where everyone else has been, right? And again, I think that's a, another phenomenal skill that Chris has is to actually see the potential in something that pretty much everyone else will actually look through as being uh, bizarre or too unusual, too difficult to actually use. And maybe an example of that is like an air brake parachute, which is sort of looks like a giant net, a spiderweb. How does that become a garment? And actually it's really successfully been, been generated into some really easy to wear styles actually, which in that case was scrap. No one can use that. It's going to be incinerated or landfill um, so it's quite an interesting skill that Chris has finessed. I think it's also interesting when we chuck in another word into this conversation which much like sustainability is a bit of a you know questionable one but luxury. The industry Rayburn as a brand but you know also um, the industry that you know you function in is labeled luxury. I wonder what that means today because we find that a lot of sort of the products is actually made in the same factory whether it's yeah. deemed luxury or not luxury. Yeah luxury in the traditional sense used to mean scarcity and generally a higher price point that went with it. And that's evolved through streetwear. And then all of a sudden scarcity meant something else. And some of the collaborations that have happened between high-end luxury and streetwear have kind of put, I suppose, the parameters into really different places. I'd like to think that we approach luxury through craft and quality and the uniqueness of the materials that we're using and whether that be original 1950s silk maps or the air brake parachutes that Graham mentioned earlier. The alchemy, so again use Graham's words, comes then through the making process and the uniqueness of what we're able to do in the, the Rayburn lab as well. And it really comes back to the team that we have there and the skill that we have and have built up over the years. And I guess that's where we put luxury and it of course comes with points where we do a lot of made to order pieces for example for customers but actually as we've evolved we really want the brand to be more accessible and the work that graham does in the, the recycle product the jersey product actually now the price points are, are really very competitive and that's important i think as we continue to grow david i think that's really interesting what you were picking up on there about those sort of changing perceptions of what luxury is and what it means and and for me now, there's some really interesting sort of subtext around things when people talk about their love for the clothing and what they're actually displaying, what they're investing in. So to take an example, I think it's really interesting when people talk about vintage clothing and publicize that. And the sort of then reading between the lines is actually displaying the fact you have the luxury of time to go searching for these pieces and actually you've refined your eye to actually pick out something extremely stylish. So that's really important. I think that people are thinking about luxury of time 
in our case, it's actually the investment in a really harmonious, healthy supply chain where actually you're investing in people in production here in you know in London or quality factories in certified organic cotton which ensures kind of workers rights way up the supply chain so I think absolutely there are these very different types of you know ways that luxury can manifest itself that it no longer is about the bottom line which it traditionally was. Chris you mentioned before that the brand is by now 10 years or thereabouts if you look back to those early days what would you tell yourself knowing what you know now? Well Thinking back to uh, 2009 or so, I feel still so fortunate that I had an amazing mentor and I'm still very good friends today, Suzanne Tide-Freighter. So Suzanne was the creative director at Selfridges and then went on to Harrods and worked with a lot of other brands, more recently Farfetch. And Suzanne was amazing. So when I first started the company and we met and very kindly she offered to help me, she would always try to slow me down, I think. So early on, I was lucky here in, in London to go through a, a program called the uh, New Generation Support. And that was part of the British Fashion Council. And all of a sudden you get put on a pedestal and everyone's kind of interested. And there's a lot of pressure actually to grow, to do more things. And Suzanne was amazing where at that time I was 27 years old. And of course I wanted to do head to toe and I wanted to do catwalk shows and I wanted to do videos and this and that. And Suzanne would always say to me, well, what are you going to do by the time you're 30? You've already done everything. And so for five years, in fact, I just did outerwear. And the discipline that Suzanne put in early on, I've always been grateful for. So that the advice I'd kind of have to anyone starting their own company, and it's the same advice that Suzanne gave me, is really just to start things slowly, do one thing properly to begin with. And so in a roundabout way, I wouldn't have done too much differently because I'm so grateful that Suzanne was there to help me. What has been interesting is having grown the brand through that 10-year period, now the dialogue around responsible design and the vocabulary and the understanding amongst the, the general public has changed dramatically. And here in the UK, programs like Blue Planet 2, more recently the War on Plastic, they're really, really starting to change the game for what people think about materials within fashion, but then also in sort of wider concepts. So it's brilliant now to be, I think, in a position where alongside a few others that were pioneers at the time, we're now certainly being held up as a brand that we're trying to do the right thing from the beginning rather than changing things. Now they understand the, the sort of dramatic consequences we're, we're very quickly going towards. To summarise, I suppose, Chris, you mentioned before that you've worked on a range of uh, chairs and screens that are actually on sale in your Soho store at the moment. Do you think that's maybe, you know, the way forward? Like, because it's a fashion brand, you make clothes, but also, as we've touched on, yes, we need clothes, but there is a lot of that around. Is that maybe a good way to expand the brand? Absolutely. After 10 years, we now feel it's really important and exciting that we start to experiment outside of traditional fashion. And the furniture partnership with a, an amazing company called Layer Design was a real honor. But then I remind myself, we actually have a sort of, I guess, an architectural experiment because the Rayburn Lab is in the old Burberry textile building. So it's a remade space already. We've been in there three years. And actually now we're starting to look at other projects like that, what does remade architecture look like on a bigger scale or product design or furniture or all of these things? And it's brilliant, again, to have the clarity of the ethos, again, back to those three R's, the remade, reduced or recycled, and to know that that gives us 
a structure, but also um, a clear reason to play in any of these places. It makes complete sense. And I think that's it, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Real pleasure. Based on the three fundamental principles, remade, reduced and recycled, and always with Chris' obsessive interest in army silhouettes and military fabrics at the center, Rayburn has established itself as an innovative luxury brand fit for 21st century consumption. Having worked as artistic director at the Swiss luxury brand Victorinox in the past, Chris is now also the global creative director of Timberland upping the brand's already impressive dedication to corporate social responsibility while also modernizing its footwear and apparel range, which the brand new standalone Rayburn store in London Soho is testament to.